The following is brought to you by TheKnowledge.com, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for September 10th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. As you listen to this, I have returned to regather my power. Yes, the great, greatest state in these United States. Number one with a bullet, Florida. I am back in my homeland, back in Broward County, representing the 954. Very, very excited to uh, reunite with friends, family, old uh, people that I knew in high school because I'm there for a high school reunion. But that's not what we're here for. We're here to learn. So we'll move on. We have a, uh, a test of strength for Donald Trump. He has selected his personally hand-picked challenger for Liz Cheney, but we will break down some of the ins and outs of that battle. And specifically, it's not the fact that he chose somebody, but rather, does he have the political will to muscle everybody else that might run out? Because this is the 10th, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the most consequential moment in politics and culture of my lifetime, a a line of demarcation. So, uh, it, it should be uh, <laughs> it should be of note to you that it coincides almost exactly with my twenty year high school reunion. We'll get into all that later as well. And finally, a return of one of our favorite guests, the Money Man, Dave Leventhal, here to talk about every little bit of financial effery. That happens in Washington, D.C. Before we get started, uh, I would like to read a statement from the United States State Department. This is in uh, reaction to the Taliban announcing their interim government of uh, Afghanistan. Uh, an interim government that includes the leader of the Haqqani Network. Now, folks who have followed... <laughs> and as we're going to get to in a second, if uh, uh, your 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 budding adult years happen to coincide with a massive event that led to a war in Afghanistan and you've spent the last two decades being obsessed <laughs> with the world that incubated Al Qaeda, then you will know the Haqqani Network. The Haqqani Network is has been around for a very long time. Uh, the father led it while it was getting money from the United States government to help beat back the Soviets. Uh, it then no longer aligned with the United States and had affiliations with both Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And now the leader of the Haqqani Network, the son of the original founder, is in the Taliban's government. So 
Uh, what did the State Department have to say about it? Well, let's read it right now. We have seen the announcement and are assessing it. I add editorially. Cool. We know that the announced list of the names consists exclusively of individuals who are members of the Taliban or their close associates and no women. Really? Really, that's what we were. We were really fingers crossed that we'd leave and the Taliban would would just install women into government. That's a thing we were hoping for. Nice. We are also concerned by the affiliations and track records of some of the individuals. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, the leader of the Haqqani Network has a $5 million bounty on his head. And we are using, the leverage we are using against the Taliban is that they can form a legitimate government and we'll pay them money. Oh, mother of pearl. All that. But first. We have a true test of the political power of Donald Trump. Now, there are few names that are higher up on Trump's kill bill death list than the political career of Liz Cheney. The Wyoming Republican and daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, Liz condemned Trump after the January 6th riots. Liz voted to impeach Trump. Liz is now one of the leaders of the January 6th commission, which is seeking to subpoena phone records from the leader of her own caucus in the House, Kevin McCarthy, in the hopes that it unearths damaging contacts between McCarthy and Trump. And so, unsurprisingly... Trump wants her out, and he wants her out now. But how does that happen, right? We're not here to tell you about all the psychodrama of this guy doesn't like that girl and blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. That's in every, and let me just say this. When I was researching this, I, I really think that the state of a lot of our political journalism is, is lacking some very, very, very key facts. Key facts like, when does this election happen? How many people are going to be voting in the election? How do you win the election? And how do these candidates resonate with the people that will decide it? So I'm going to do my best to give you guys all of that right now. Cheney is up for re-election next year which means she has a primary coming up in less than a year. Usually it happens in August, but I haven't seen exactly when the date is set coming up next year. But it always happens around the middle of August. For the last few months, Trump has summoned various potential Cheney challengers to Mar-a-Lago, vetting them to see whom might get Donald's endorsement. Who is truly ready to end the Liz legacy and banish Cheney to a pundit position at MSNBC. Well, we've got our woman. Trump has reportedly selected Harriet Hageman. This old home near Fort Laramie means a lot to Harriet Hageman. It's where she learned that when you give someone your word, you keep it, that people matter most, that Wyoming's home. 
She's lived her life by these lessons and spent her career advocating for and defending the people of Wyoming. Harriet Hageman understands the challenges our state faces, and she'll meet them head on. Wyoming made Harriet Hageman tough. Harriet Hageman will make Wyoming proud. That's from Harriet's run for governor a few years ago. It ended in a third-place finish. Hageman is a known quantity in Wyoming conservative circles and was an ally of Liz Cheney up until recently. So, that's a little spicy. But honestly, who cares about Harriet? This is about Trump and Liz. Does the ex-president sway as the most popular member of his party extend all the way into the hinterlands of the cowboy state? Few things to remember about Wyoming. They only have one House seat. That means this is essentially a statewide race in the way that governor or senator would be. But then again, considering Wyoming as the population of Milwaukee, that's a lot more land than people. Trump settling on Hageman isn't his real job. No, his real job is going to be clearing the field, a very rancher task for a Wyoming race. He's got to get the dead weight out of the way if he wants this to be a successful push against Liz Cheney, because Liz Cheney is counting on the fact that Wyoming tends to be a fairly crowded primary process. A lot of people run. In fact, when Cheney first ran for that seat in 2014, she was run out of it because people looked at her as a carpetbagger. She was not somebody that was of the land. 2016 rolls around and she gets elected. Why? Because it was a crowded field. And despite the fact that she owned, that she got less than 50%, it was still enough to move her on to the general when she cruised. Donald Trump has won twice in Wyoming by the largest percentages that he did nationwide. That's because Wyoming has a tremendous advantage in terms of voter registration for the Republican Party. But will the largely independent Wyoming Republican electorate take their orders from Mar-a-Lago? an ex-New Yorker, now a retiree in Florida. They don't like strangers coming in and telling them what to do. Not these simple folk out there in Wyoming. And so, if Cheney can keep a lot of people in this race, she has a better shot of winning. If Donald Trump can get those mustaches and 10-gallon hats onto the sidelines so that she can line up Uh, Harriet can line up in a one-on-one with Liz, well, Cheney might have a hard time winning. So let's get to the Cheney of it all. What does she do? Well, beyond having whatever surrogates in Wyoming continue to encourage everybody to run for office if indeed they so desire to, it seems as if Cheney is doubling down on the fact that this she's an anti-Trump candidate. She's not going to try and hide, and she's certainly not going to try and reconcile with the president. She is ascending to leadership on the January 6th commission, and either that is going to be something that appeals to the independent nature of Wyoming Republican voters, 
or she's out and now she has a job in media. I tend to think that, well, actually, I don't even think. I'm looking at this race and Brian Kemp's race in the midterms as a tremendous mid-card attraction. Yes, at the top of the card, we're going to see whether or not the Republicans can take the House. We're going to see whether or not Republicans can take the Senate. However, there is also the, the big question of does Donald Trump's political utility have the, 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 the kind of power that he expects it to? And a lot of that will happen before the actual election day. We're looking at these primaries. We're looking at Brian Kemp's primary in Georgia for governor. And we are looking at Liz Cheney's primary in Wyoming. We're going to see exactly how powerful the Don really is in 2022. It was 20 years ago today. Well, tomorrow, depending on when you listen to this, that uh, 9-11 happened. Told this story a few times, so I'm going to keep it short. I was a freshman in college. I was away from home in Syracuse, New York, at the University of Syracuse, or Syracuse University, I forget. And I remember the the comical situation of walking uh, to go get coffee from the student union before I went to an early class. And a sorority girl walked by me crying on the phone, to which I thought, man, I wonder what drama's up with that sorority girl. And then I got to the student union and uh, all of the windows had been drawn. So the projector that was that was showing CNN could be seen more clearly and all I remember seeing is the Chiron on screen that said uh, a plane crash building. To which I remembered that it was not but a few weeks ago that there was a small craft that had landed on or near the lawn of the White House. And so I thought, oh, it's just a you know plane crash. Whatever. Planes crash all the time. Went to my class. And uh, there was a kid who I will never, I will never, ever, ever forget um, was like almost manic, like he was processing it in a very dark humor kind of way and was talking about how it, what was happening looked like King Kong, that there were just these gigantic smoking holes in the World Trade Center. And it was at that point that I was like, wow, wow, Jesus, the World Trade Center. Oh. Cancel class. I walk back to my dorm, at which point I remembered that the night before I had been hired as a professional journalist for the first time in my life. I'd gotten a job. They were paying me. And I called the news office and I said to my editor, who I'd really just met a couple of weeks ago because we're into the first couple of weeks of my first semester in college. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that you're going to need me in. And she's like, yeah, get your ass in here right now. And so I did. It's hard 
for me to quantify how much 9-11 changed my world. Because if we're, if we're going to look back on it with the kind of clinical hindsight that only 20 years can provide, then it's almost poetic that there was such a dividing line between my childhood and my adulthood. There were childhood ideas and hopes and dreams and wishes, and then there was an adulthood for which I had a vocation. And in a way, I have continued that vocation 20 years on to this moment right now. In fact, if I looked at myself from 20 years ago, the kid that was up for five days straight trying to put out these newspapers, these daily newspapers, making some of the most toughest calls, phone calls of my entire life, talking to people for whom were soaked up to their eyeballs in a tragedy that 48 hours ago had seemed totally infeasible. And I said that this is your future. 20 years on, you're doing this exactly the way that you want it. You're talking about exactly the kind of stuff. And, and also it's a little bit easier because you really don't have to, you don't have to write a lot of stuff. You can just kind of talk. I think that I would even then, in that moment, the moment after 9-11 happens, say, that makes sense. Because what made sense to me after 9-11 was that I was born to understand the world because there was so much of the world that had immediately a big, messy, gigantic, squiggling pile of unknown that was delivered to everybody. On 9-11. And it was something that I knew I needed to get to the bottom of. I needed to understand. I needed to understand the Patriot Act. I needed to understand why opium fields in Afghanistan had led to a world in which we were now deploying into a war, a war that was only ended weeks ago. Why that philosophy, the political philosophy largely driven by exiles of many of these regions, that the way to stop international terrorism is indeed to interject American military and diplomatic power and money into a region to give it hope. And we've watched these philosophies come and go. We've watched the rise and fall of the neocon. We've watched the rise and fall of nation building. In its place, we have seen a rise of populism, something that is not quite Fortress America, not quite nothing beyond our borders matters, but is certainly more focused on the domestic than the international. We've also seen a return of a big question mark. A, 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 a question mark in what is danger for us. And that reminds me of a pre-9-11 world. It does. I mean, a reminder that part of the reason why, in hindsight, 9-11 was something that 
should have been focused on more, at least in 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 the review of the facts, is that, well, we'd already seen Al Qaeda try to bomb the World Trade Center. Time to get paid blow up like the World Trade as wrapped by the notorious B.I.G. was not about 9-11. It was about the first time that that happened. We'd already seen the USS Cole get blown up. And so now, what is that question? What are the biggest forces that lie in wait to endanger the United States? The Biden administration very much has the idea that this is Russia and China, that we are very much going back to a more Cold War 80s mentality, that the biggest enemies of America are state actors. Not ragtag groups of, you know, well-funded militias, folks who can go overseas and wreak havoc. In many ways, that to me is the legacy of 9-11. The idea that death and decomposition of our lifestyle can not come with a steady drumbeat of war that then leads to a breakdown in diplomatic back and forths. But instead, it's an international ticket on Delta. And then a rendezvous in the parking lot. And then somebody who's willing to die for a cause, killing many, many others who didn't know that they were even involved. But beyond that, as we heard from Jen Briney on Wednesday, some of that is also internal now. We worry about domestic terrorism. We worry about our inhumanity to each other. A lot has been made over the past week or so as we become nostalgic and more analytical about 9-11 of a moment that I remember at the time being referred to as the de-hyphenization of America. That in the weeks that followed 9-11, the natural divides that normally keep us apart, regionality, North versus South, Boston versus New York, Now those were all gone. Everybody felt empathy for the people of New York. Everybody felt empathy for the people in the Pentagon. Everybody felt empathy for the people in that field in Pennsylvania, the plane that was taken down by its passengers. It was in that moment that George W. Bush became the most popular president of all time, according to approval ratings. And it's often spoken about as a kind of Shangri-La, a moment where we realized what mattered. Like two old friends that had a falling out and then a mutual friend dies and it's only at that funeral that they can bury the past. And as much as, again, I feel like my purpose 
as any kind of analyst or journalist is to try to make sense of the things that don't seem to make sense. I always have tended to believe that that's a foolhardy errand to try and chase that, to try and make that something that we aspire to. While I very much believe that we should have more humanity toward each other. And, and I do think that in, in some ways, specifically politically, we have never been more callous to the ideas that the idea that we might have different points of view. I, I don't think that hearkening back to a time when the country was clearly traumatized and trying to figure out what North, South, East, and West was, that that was the time that we should emulate. Instead, the only time is now. And if there is something that you could say to the people whose world was rocked on 9-11, whose family members were lost, the greatest gift you could say is be kind to those around you now. And so while the questions, the large political questions, the philosophical questions about what is America, what is our role, how can we avoid what happened yet again, will continue to dominate our conversation for much longer than the 20 years we have already been asking them. The one thing that we can do, all of us, is to understand that the world we live in is not promised. We are very, very, very fortunate to live in it. And while we're here, we might as well make it nice for those who are living here with us. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me this platform. Uh, uh, obviously, none of this happens without you. I'll tell you what, here's something that, that uh, uh, 20 years younger Justin uh, would be shocked about. 18-year-old Justin would be shocked about. 18-year-old Justin would be shocked that a bunch of strangers on the internet are giving him enough money to make a living. He would be shocked. He'd be blown away. That would be very, very, very surprising to him. Although probably a bit of an ego boost. So good, good for you, kiddo. If you would like to support this show, then please head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Now, the $3 level gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week. $10 level gets you that, and you get your name shouted out at the end of the show. But as we announced on Wednesday, it goes down next week. Free HBO week begins where on the free feed, everybody is going to get the $3 club experience. You're going to get the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show. You are going to get the late edition on Thursday where the latest possible news that we talk about during the week is discussed on that episode. Everybody's going to get a taste Thank you to the patrons who have allowed this because I had to ask their permission first. But should you enjoy what you hear, 
then remember, throughout the entire process, TakePoliticsSeriously.com is there for you. You can make it happen. For three bucks a week, you get everything that you're going to get for free next week as we move into Recall Week with Gavin Newsom. Thank you one more time. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today has his finger on the green pulse of D.C. If money is involved in our world of representative government, then Dave knows all about it. From Insider's D.C. Bureau, we welcome back to the show the money man, Dave Leventhal. Welcome back to the program, Dave. It is a delight and an honor to be back, Justin. <laughs> You've got an article coming out uh, today, right? When, when, when it is today, because it's coming out on Friday. So it is out today on Insider about one of our favorite topics. And that is, of course, the, uh, the, the, the FEC and whether or not Biden is going to do anything about it. So let's go ahead and, and recap what we have. So the Federal Election Commission, the yeah. FEC, uh, the, the aforementioned uh, favorite topic of, of you, me, and, and so many others. So uh, many others. Oh, it's always so popular. People are emailing me and they're saying, talk more about the FEC. We demand it. And, and, and we jest, but <laughs> the, the FEC, which was created, your 32nd history lesson here, created in the aftermath of Watergate and was supposed to be a bulwark against corruption and malfeasance and wrongdoing in political campaigns. Yeah. And put an end or at least corral the influence of money in politics during election seasons. Um, the FEC has never really lived up to the lofty ideal that, that it would be such. And if you talk to some skeptics, you will hear a refrain of, well, the FEC was always set up to fail. That the FEC, by the nature of what it is, which is a bipartisan commission, even number of commissioners, uh, theoretically, Republicans and Democrats, that, that they would just have to really agree on stuff in order to get anything done. And oftentimes they just simply wouldn't. So cases before them, uh, the decisions to fine political actors, they, they'd really have to come to some firm conclusion to, to get to that point and, and sanction politicians or political actors for their actions in the context of a campaign. All right, so that was maybe 45 seconds of a history lesson. Sure, yeah. Well, can, can we can we go back to that for a second? Because I, I would almost be in favor of the FEC being like a, a Supreme Court post. Like something where, like, let's give them the freedom to go beyond a political definition. Let's just, in, in the same way that the Supreme Court, the nominees tend to sway from the people that appoint them politically, why not just have this be a council of elders that says you can't get this money? So flash forward to the present day. There we you go. You may have heard of H.R. 1 and Senate Bill 1, okay. which are twin companion pieces of legislation that are really the cornerstone of the Democrats' congressional legislative agenda 
for yes. this term. And what both of those are, well, there are a lot of things, and and they're voting rights bills. Okay, they are ethics reform bills, and 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 deep down, but very much there within both of those bills. They are there to reform the FEC into effectively what you described. Okay, not a bipartisan, even Stevens six six or you know, six member commission where you can have these deadlock votes where where nobody really gets any satisfaction. You, you don't know really if you won or if you lost. It's just uh, it just kind of just kind of there and it fizzles yeah. away. What what HR one and and Senate Bill one want to do is create a five member commission where you would have a odd number of commissioners, where it would be much more of a uh, a council of elders, so to speak. Sure. And you would have definitive decisions where if, for example, a uh, presidential campaign or a political action committee was suspected of doing something really bad, taking illegal money or or foreign money or spending it in such a way that that is beyond the pale and and completely in violation of election law that this council of elders this federal election commission uh, in in its new form and fashion could absolutely have a definite ruling with real penalties that would make the hurt something that goes well above and beyond what we have typically right now from the current FEC but those two bills Highly likely at this point, Justin, that they're going they're dead. a whole lot they're of nowhere. Dead. No, they're, they're, either of them are happening. And I, I think it also gets into the idea that, like, there's a lot in those bills. This isn't just a targeted thing to say, no, we need to beef up the the FEC. It's it, it, it's a whole suite of, of remedies largely written by Democrats that say that this is how elections should go. Uh, and I should note too that the FEC provisions, and in, in with many of the people who I've talked to in this realm, the FEC provisions, at least among some Republicans, are the least popular aspect of these two bills. Yeah, and that maybe you're not going to get lots of Republicans to get on board, no matter what you do. Yeah, but if you're a Democrat and and you were to strip out this FEC provision, Mitch McConnell, for example, hates the notion of a strong FEC. Sure. actively worked against empowering the FEC at any level greater than what it is right now. So perhaps strip out the FEC stuff from HR1 and S1, and maybe you have a, a little bit of a different calculus. But yes, I agree. I, I think that <laughs> the prospects of either of these bills I, I getting passed and breath. signed by Joe Biden are... You know, about no. as good as uh, the planet Mars slamming into the planet Jupiter tomorrow. Well, then, if if Biden and the Democrats indeed are the champions of a tough FEC, then what steps can Biden take unilaterally? Well, during the campaign, we heard from Joe Biden. You can still go to his campaign platform and read uh, what he wants to do about money and politics. And he has a whole section that lists a whole variety of things, including, and I'm quoting from it right now, he wants to reduce the corrupting influence of money and politics, okay? And he wants to improve our politics overnight by flushing, <laughs> quote, big money from the system, okay? That sure. sounds like fairly dramatic rhetoric there from, from the then uh, presidential yes. candidate Biden and now President Biden. Written on so, the website of a billion dollar campaign. A, a billion dollar plus campaign. Billion and plus, yeah. Not even including all the outside money that was spent necessarily <laughs> on, on it as well. But that's a, a story for a different time. Sure. 
But to your question, what could Joe Biden do right now, assuming, yeah. presuming that S1 and HR1 are, are DOA, dead on arrival? What Joe Biden could do is he could nominate three new Federal Election Commission commissioners today. In fact, he could have done that back at the beginning of May when the perhaps most conservative member of the FEC, as it stands right now, a man by the name of Sean Cooksey, not a household name, but you, you might know his former boss, who's Senator Josh Hawley, one of the most conservative members of, of the U.S. Senate. Yep. Uh, his term expired. So he's serving right now on borrowed time. Sean Cooksey is. And Joe Biden, by virtue of him being president, has the ability to nominate new Federal Election Commission commissioners. Yeah. And the only restriction that Joe Biden really has in nominating commissioners, at least by law, is that the FEC can be constituted of no more than three members of a single political party. Traditionally, that's been three Democrats and three Republicans, right? Right. Yep. But nothing says that you can't nominate two Democrats, two Republicans, and two independents, or three Democrats and zero Republicans and three Green Party commissioners. Sure. There's lots of different ways to do it. Now, this may seem like a technicality, but it's really not. We actually have one independent commissioner serving on the FEC right now guy by the name of Steve Welther, who, who definitely leans left, but sometimes has voted with Republicans and is not a dependable liberal vote on the FEC. So Joe Biden today could nominate somebody to replace Sean Cooksey, the Republican. He can nominate somebody to replace Steve Welther, the not quite dependable independent, Democrat. at least as far as Democrats are concerned. And what Joe Biden could do and I, I say this in the spirit, uh, in the idea of Democrats wanting to pack the Supreme Court yep. and, and, and put together a Supreme Court that would go beyond nine commissioners. Well, you can't have any more than six commissioners right now in the FEC, but you could pack the, uh, pack the Federal Election Commission if you are Joe Biden with people who are doing what you set out to do on the money and politics front reduce the corrupting influence of money in politics, having stronger oversight, enforcing the laws, basically making this a Democratic-driven commission, a liberal-driven commission. You may think that's a terrible idea. You yep. may think that's the greatest idea in the world, but it's something that Joe Biden has the power to do. And the bottom line there is he just simply hasn't done it yet. I'm sure he's getting to it. Right. Well, any any day now, he's just going to take care of that campaign promise and flush all this money. Right. He, he's had a few other things going on. He there, there's been that he's little been pandemic. Busy. He's been busy. Yeah. The, no. the, there, there's a thing in Afghanistan. Uh -huh. uh, we, we have a few budget battles going on here. But but this is this kind of strikes to the heart of the matter about money in politics. It's really, really popular. And everyone's talking about it. It's all the rage and a big priority for Democrats until it isn't. Yes. Okay. And, and we saw this with Barack Obama, who talked an incredibly strong game about money and politics when he was running for president and left many, many, many of his liberal Democratic supporters who wanted this to be a big priority and wanted to see the Citizens United decision be fought and wanted stuff like dark money, the secret money in politics to, to be revealed and be more transparent. None of it really happened. Okay? <laughs> and, 
And, and he, I'll talk to lots of Democrats who are like, yeah, Obama let us down. And, and now they're scratching their heads wondering, well, you know, is Joe Biden going to let us down here on this front too? It, it sounds all good during the campaign when he's talking about political money reforms and then gets into power. And there's always something that is a bigger priority or 10 somethings that are a bigger priority. And this never really rises to the level of taking bold and decisive action. Again, agree with it or not agree with it, but it is an issue of priorities. And this just simply has not been a priority for Joe Biden as we speak right now. So let me give you a borderline cynical take, and I want your reaction to it. As much as I can get in trouble on this show for comparing politics to professional wrestling, I do believe that both industries benefit when the referees are incompetent, not only for their performances, but also for the benefit of the audience in general. Is this a bipartisan agreement that we would rather that the FEC be totally defanged and incompetent because at the very least they can both agree that they want the most amount of money to run against each other? Well, somewhere in the time warp of 1987, Danny Davis is scratching his head at this conversation. But <laughs> based on what you said, yeah, you know, there there absolutely is a major issue where where it's sort of mutually assured destruction. You you yeah. know that if the Democrats know that the needle uh, goes too much to the left and too much into their direction, even though it'll be a wonderful thing for a while for them, that Republicans, once they seize power and have the White House again and have control of Congress again, will do things that are going to be absolutely not only anathema to their philosophy, but uh, in their opinion would, would be ruinous to the democratic process, to, to the way that we function as a country. Sure. The, the counter argument to that, though, uh, that I've heard from, from more than a few Democrats is we're beyond that right now, that, that Republicans, in their opinion, have gone so far Trump and, and, and that the standard notions, the, the traditional trappings of politics where there will be this sort of understood equilibrium between the two parties, that, that's just not a thing anymore as it would have been even five or 10 years ago so that they, in their opinion, uh, want to see Democrats take really, really, really uh, bold action in a way that that perhaps would have been unthinkable not a half a generation ago in politics. Yes. And what happens when they're running against a candidate that has twice amount of the money than, than than the Democrat has? I think I think that's that's always where the rubber meets the road with this stuff is like, yes, it, it's great. You should all take big action. And then if you get run over an airtime that your opponent has money to buy and you don't, then it's like, why did we hamstring ourselves? We should have had this money. And, and de Democrats, uh, other Democrats have said, well, yeah, because I'll, I'll ask them all the time. Well, why don't you just live this yourself? Yeah. Uh, don't worry about the law for a second. Don't worry about the, the Federal Election yep. Commission for a moment here. Why don't you just live what you want. Why, why don't you be the change Just go that vegan. You seek? Just go vegan. Like, like, like now all of a sudden, super you, you go ahead. Don't take dark money 
if if a billionaire wants to cut a ten million dollar check for that that committee that that's going to plaster the airwaves with with pro you advertisements and anti Republican advertisement, no, you don't want that. Speak out against it, and and it, it they must have it tattooed to their forearm the term we can't unilaterally disarm. And that is the refrain that you hear from Democrats when that question is put to them, mostly. Now, Bernie Sanders was an anomaly, not an anomaly completely, but but sort of the, the biggest, boldest name among the anomalies where he ran his presidential campaign in 2016 and in 2020 demonstrably differently than other Democratic candidates. Yeah. And and he largely rejected super PACs and he largely spoke out against big money in politics. And and he ran his campaigns in, in a way that when you looked at the statistics, when you looked at the reality, it was different than Joe Biden. It was sure. different than now, even, it, it, you know, it, 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 Warren and, and a few others. It also happened to be a font of small money, right? The small do- donor uh, uh, class for him was gigantic. So it wasn't like he was lagging behind in terms of funds to work with. And and w- w- when the rubber met the road, when it came to negative ads with PACs supporting him, he, he might have said like, oh, I... I I disavow, but but it, I mean, there's only so much realistically you can even do about that, right? Correct, but but he did prove the concept that that you can run a national campaign and using, be rewarded uh, for it, and be right. rewarded for it by small donor uh, uh, people. Correct, and 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 was did yeah. he win the nomination either time? No, no. But did he run a campaign that was so much stronger and and deeper than almost anyone would have ever thought he could back just a couple of years ago? Certainly in 2016, yes, he did. So credit where credit is due, even if such credit will not win you a uh, a trip to the White House. You know, speaking of the small donor stuff, I, I really feel that the FEC is an important organization, probably even more so now because of the changing landscape of uh, donations. Like, like we're seeing, you know, things like like uh, the, the the Trump campaign getting in trouble for making all the donations uh, automatically recurring as opposed to one time, and that's something where I think a really technically literate FEC should be there in place because we're going to see every little trick that has come out of email marketing and and web, mobile web and app marketing. They're all, if they're not already here, going to come to politics because it's become so important. I don't know. I I, I, I just really think that's the agency that should be acting very, very quickly when these things come up, because they're going to come up really quickly. Well, you you brought up a really good point, which is something that regardless of what your politics are, you could be the most conservative Republican or liberal Democrat in the world. And and there are uh, absolutely some really, really nasty things going on in political marketing and fundraising. And one of them is these check boxes that if you get an email from certain political campaigns, the Trump campaign has done this a ton, but some Democrats have done this too. Yep. But the Trump campaign definitely at the forefront they will automatically opt you in to making additional donations or recurring donations. And if you're not savvy, if you're not paying attention, if if you're somebody who perhaps uh, is 
you know, uh, elderly and, and doesn't quite know how this works, then you might be suddenly paying two, three, 10, 20 times more than the $25 donation or the $50 donation that you set out to make that suddenly turns into 500 or a thousand or even more. And we've seen this happen. This is not a theoretical thing that this is something that has happened time and time again. And it's, uh, it's pernicious and it's ugly. And it's something that if, if your 87 year old grandfather or whatnot has suddenly just been bled dry of his meager life savings because he didn't uncheck a box on an email that he got begging him for money from a politician that he really respected or loves, uh, that that's that's some nasty stuff, Justin. So the, the Federal Election Commission has actually, in a rare unanimous move, has told Congress you need a law to change this. Okay. So, okay, great. They, they said, hey, Congress, pass a law to do this. Now, one could envision if Joe Biden, going back to him, installed a very activist liberal FEC, that the FEC itself might say, we're going to pass a rule. We're not going to wait for Congress here. We're going to pass yeah. a regulation that says, no, you cannot do these checkbox things anymore. Or one of my personal favorites, and uh, and Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, they don't agree on anything, but man, for a long time they agreed on this. These fake matching emails where they will say, hey, give $100 to my campaign. I'm going to magically turn that into $500 through this matching so this program is, that we have. Yeah, th- th- this is something that, that my, my wife, who used to be in nonprofits, she broke down the numbers for me when it comes to the psychology of donating to anything that you are more likely to give if you think there's a magical rich person on the other side that's going to match your donation. Like that that is a more likely activation for you. And and yeah, you're right. Pelosi and Trump love this. But but you but you're saying there's no magical money on the other side. That's just a, to, a headline. To be perfectly clear. This is fake. fake. It is fake. false. It is a ruse. Yeah. There is there are no magical matching donors. There there is no $500 Rumpel Stiltskin is not spinning your $100 into $500 worth of gold. Like it just doesn't happen. We know that because I have talked to many people in the fundraising game We've confirmed that no, there's actually nobody there. And then you can look at the numbers and you can say, oh, okay, well, maybe in these FEC reports that get filed, you, you can do the math and you can see where Joe Smith or Jane Smith's $100 is being turned into $500. Nope, not there either. Okay, well, well, maybe something else is going on and, 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 and maybe this is secret money. No, it couldn't because this is all coming into political campaigns of a sort that have to disclose their money. So it's just not real. And if you get one of those emails, I I would encourage you now to delete it as quickly as you can, because, (laughs) hey, if you want to donate to a politician, if you want to give uh, your money to Donald Trump, if you want to give your money to Nancy Pelosi, great, go ahead and do it, but do it without the expectation that your money is going to be worth a cent more than the amount that you're putting down to make a donation to them. And and for specific listeners to this show, let's discourage 
the effectiveness of that. Like, like, like if you're going to give to these politicians, which by the way, I don't recommend for any politician, but like, if you need to, at least don't reinforce that lying makes them more money. Just go to the website and and and, and donate, but just don't give them the analytics that say the more we lie about a fantasy matching offer, the more money comes in. And just quickly, I've talked to plenty of Republicans, too, who are aghast at this, too, and say that this is so counterproductive and it, it's making a mockery of who we are and what we do. Like, we should be able to win on our campaign and our yeah. candidate and our ideas and or or Trumpism, for that matter. But we shouldn't be playing games that are are tantamount to to fraud. Uh, that That is definitely an opinion out there. Not just on the left, because but this, on the right. Because this, this goes beyond ideology. It, it really is at the core of like, okay, there's a shifting world of where money comes from. More than ever, it comes from small donors. And you've seen Bernie Sanders and you've seen Donald Trump build massive machines, largely with that being the foundation. So- if that's the case, you go to other things in the private sector that also do effective, quote unquote, small dollar donations, which is every e-marketing thing that's ever happened. And you look at all the tricks, good, bad and horrendous. And these are the ones that really border on predatory. So it will be most curious to see if the FEC, as it is now or as it is in the future, aim directly at these types of marketing schemes that have become endemic in politics here in 2021. <sighs> and so now the the the, the next step with the the check boxes is Congress needs to make a law on it. At least that, that that's where the FEC left it last time they discussed it. There has been a bill that has been drafted. It has not been acted upon yet. But yes, it is possible that is a standalone bill or wrapped into something bigger, like an omnibus bill, that that could become law. Uh, there is precedent to little money in politics bills or, or not so little money in politics bills getting wrapped into bigger bills and, and suddenly become law. Uh, it was just three years ago, right about now, that the Senate, which used to file its campaign finance disclosures on paper <laughs> electronically and the government was spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars every year of your taxpayer money and mine to digitize these paper records Good they finally got 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 into the 21st century arguably the 20th century and and passed a law provision in one of the bigger bills that that said okay the senate actually is going to have to file their records electronically so that we can save this money. And, you know, oh, yeah, that little transparency thing actually make it easy for people to figure out what a senator's doing when it comes to his or her campaign money. Well, uh, I, I'm always glad that you can come on and get me all fired up about the FEC because it is <laughs> it is certainly a topic that is evergreen in that variety. Dave, you are out there in D.C. with the the fledgling now uh, insider bureau. Uh, what are you guys working on? Well, there there are eleven of us now, uh -oh. and uh, it, it wasn't uh, th this time last year. We were just getting started, and uh, we didn't even exist even a year and a half ago. So it's uh, it's been wild to to help uh, 
build and, and create uh, something from nothing. And we're working on a whole variety of things. Uh, we talked a couple of months ago, you and I, Justin, about yep. uh, the stock trades that members of Congress are engaged in. Uh, we have a whole series of articles and more to come about how members of Congress are spending their own personal money sometimes disclosing it very, very, very after the fact in violation <laughs> of federal law, I should note, and sometimes buying, for example, um, defense contractor stocks when you sit on the House Armed Services Committee and mm. other things of a similar sort. So we're really bird-dogging conflicts of interest. Uh, several of my colleagues are also working on a series of stories about what it's like to be a low-level staffer in the federal government. Uh, let's just say there's a lot of Me Too stuff. Uh, there is a lot of bad boss stuff. There is a lot of, uh, hey, I work as a junior staffer for a member of Congress, but I also have to work at Starbucks to make ends meet kind of stuff as well. So some really fascinating oh, that's inside good. the Capitol type, of, uh, type of action that we've been able to reveal. Awesome. Uh, so what everybody needs to do, if you haven't already, is head on over to Insider, get their Insider Plus, because that's where all the really good stuff that is coming out of this D.C. Bureau lives. And uh, uh, I recommend it highly. Happy subscriber to that service. Well, well, thank you. And it will cost you all of a buck for 30 days to try us out. And I... Hope you'll sign up for the full Monty after that. Dave, where can people find you? Insider.com for starters, easy enough. And you can find all my stuff at, uh, at Dave Leventhal on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, buddy. Thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll be tuning into the next FEC meeting, which comes <laughs> later this month. Real exciting. Get your popcorn ready. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Justin Robert Young is my name. I have written and hosted this episode of Politics, Politics, Politics in the Dog and Pony Show studio in Austin, Texas. It was edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to uh, go ahead and give a shout out to Dave Leventhal for again using uh, his, his time with us here, it is at px3guest.com. If you want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our live streams, which will begin again next week, is at px3live.com. And our podcast can be shared at px3podcast.com. Go ahead and get your politics, politics, politics merch at politicsmerch.com. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so with a one-time payment at our PayPal, paypal.me slash payjury. Our cash app, px3cash. And our Venmo, if you would like to continue to conduct our ongoing experiment to find out if Venmo money is indeed real, you can send me a dollar to justin-young-20. If you'd like to hit me up with something physical in our P.O. Box, you can do so at P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course... You can go ahead and get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including our Titanic $10 tier. If you're part of the $10 tier, go fill out that survey because new nicknames roll out next week. That's when I am I'm, I'm printing out the list and we're getting it going. 
Last go-round for the old nicknames. Here they go. Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday. Idris, the government unfiltered podcast. 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Stephen, Kathy Mag, Zombie Doc D. Really? Methuselah, Honeysuckle. The Gen, MiddleAgeMike.com, Junkie, Calamity, Zap D, Laser Lord, Scale, De Quince, Anili Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Utah, Jimmy, Montana. Chad, Amanda, Ye Old Pinball Shop. John Benjamin, DP4 Bungo, Charles Olin and Angela, DL Miranda Janelle, Robert David Snuffies off Route 44, Chris, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, just another pilot, Will JPIG, and Andrew. Again, if you would like to have your name read out, the only place to go is take politics seriously.com. And, and uh, unlike the $3 stuff on, on free HBO week, uh, that remains the domain of those that support us at that level. Greatly appreciated. Till next time. Have a great weekend. Everybody is your old pal, Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this this is the only show that dares discuss how Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.